Hi, and welcome to Emerging Markets Today. My name is Ana Paula Picasso, and this episode will be about the future of fintech in emerging markets. We are going to talk about how emerging economies are moving from being cash-based to digital payments, the gender gap in financial inclusion, and to talk about all that, I'm here with Sherry Jiang. She's the co-founder of the co-founder and CEO of Blue Jay Finance, a fintech that provides financial services to underbanked populations in Asia. Hi, Sherry. Welcome to Emerging Markets today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. The last probably three episodes were about financial inclusion in emerging markets. I think it's a very hot topic. And you have a very interesting history. Before we we talk about the future and talk about Blue Jay Finance, I want to know more about the work you guys do in Asia. I want to talk about your history, your journey within the payment system. And you were the uh, the product manager for Google in India. And I thought it was an amazing history. We had a prep a pre-call and you told me uh, your experience there. So maybe we can start with your experience, with your time in India. I was um, one of the first uh, few product marketing managers working on Google Pay. Um, This was back in 2017. Um, And basically at the time, um, the payment space was actually still very new. Um, Digital payment space was still pretty new in India. And started growing a lot more um, during something called uh, demonetization, uh, meaning the Indian government decided to um, get rid of a couple of notes, uh, take it out of circulation to make a push for digital payments. Um, So Google Pay was one of the first uh, that was built on top of something called UPI, um, basically allowed for bank to bank uh, transfers in India, very similar to PICS in Brazil or um, FAST in Singapore as well. But that was revolutionary at the time and really opened up the market for people to start actually sending money um, across the country in a matter of seconds versus having to deal with cash. And so um, that experience was um, incredible. I was able to see how um, India really transformed uh, over just a course of a couple of years where um, digital payments really started taking off and became something that I think almost close to uh, maybe a few hundred million or a billion users are using today, which is definitely not where the space was before. So uh, see like uh, even street vendors selling pineapple juice are accepting QR payments uh, or, you know, Google Pay um, as a form of payment when previously it was all cash. So um, it was amazing to see uh, a country transform like that um, in just a couple of years and, you know, play a you know, small part uh, within that evolution. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's very. Um, you mentioned the. You mentioned Brazil's uh, payment peaks, and I'm from Brazil originally. I think I say that every, in every episode. I'm from Brazil, and it's uh, probably now. I think it's just just coming up two years, or just about two years. In a space of two years, we had a massive adoption there. Everybody's using peaks. But having this strong payment infrastructure, I think it impacts all the sectors, doesn't it? Like e-commerce, like you mentioned, vendors, yeah. uh, retail. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, right? Um, that's because 
we cannot go through life without paying for something every day, right? You you take public transit, um, you you tap and pay, um, you uh, book a cab, um, you buy lunch. I mean, there's there's payments in everything that we do because um, you know, in order for the economy to keep running, there's a service or good being provided, and you know, an, a, you know, an economic compensation for that. And so, um, you know, how how Google Pay started was really like a actually a very simple proposition to begin with. Um, we focused on peer-to-peer only for almost a year, right? It was just, how do I pay Anna back for pizza? Or how do I um, transfer money for my family? And, and there was no merchant payments. And and we got this part, I guess, correct first, um, focusing on a small use case, but that became very, very viral because there's some network effects related to payments. If I pay someone... If I need to pay someone, I bring them on board onto the payments app, and then there's some incentive atta- uh, attached to it, and then now they're a user, and then that that's kind of how it grows. But um, over time, um, then bill payments were added, which include utilities, electricity, uh, mobile, um, then uh, e-commerce, right? So using um, GPay for um, online bus booking, right? That was something that I worked on as well. Uh, it expands to everything, right? And um, that's because pay me- payments and paying for things is so pervasive in life. But I do think when you know building out um, payments or building out, um, you know, even even if you think about crypto payments, right? You have to start with something that is a big problem today. It could be a simple proposition, and then it extends and expands to more use cases um, as as a as a product grows and the market matures. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also, I always say that in emerging com- economies, we have more smartphones than bank accounts. Some countries are mobile first and mobile only. Some people don't even have other ways to to use the internet, use Wi-Fi apart from the phones. And also, I think that's what one of the factors that accelerated this adoption as well. But um, talking, still talking about India, Sherry, about the gender gap in financial inclusion. You mentioned on the pre-call there was about only 10% of women. I know initially in the early days of digital payments, um, it was, I would say 10 to 15%, depending on the product, um, 10 to 15% of the users were women, um, which is obviously a very small percentage if you think about the population, which is 50% women, right? Um, now, uh, this was always a conundrum for, for the business, right? Um, like, you know, there's sometimes this bias of like, oh, if our users are mostly this kind of profile, we should just find more users like that, right? So it's almost like a a, a compounding effect. But um, my when we were having conversations back in Google Pay, um, my perspective was like, look, this might indicate um, natural bias in our go-to-market efforts and not really a reflection of the reality on the ground. Um, and also it's it can everyone cares about everyone has a relationship with money somehow right um and it, like it is um it is too much to say that like women users are just not b- finding usage in digital payments and aren't a customer right no no of course not yeah yeah so so there there's you know in p- potentially biases in the way that we acquire users as well as like um, biases in the way that the product is even designed because the way women think about money might be different. And so um, I actually worked on this initiative within Google Pay that we called 
um, build for empowerment. Um, and uh, basically, we did a like a study um, talking to many, many different women, running surveys, um, just to understand like, you know, how exactly women think about money. How do they find out their financial information? Um, and um, and then you know eventually propose some some solutions um, to leadership. Um, and a few things stood out, right? Uh, number one is that. So, what did you find out in this study? Yeah, uh, number one, um, women tend to think about money more socially um, than men do. So, by socially, I mean um, they tend to be like uh, more household finance oriented if they're, let's say, um, married. Um, of course, if you are, uh, you know, younger female, that may not apply as much. But um, many women that um, fit like the, I guess, age range that we were speaking to are are, are married, right? So. Um, the the way that they think about money is okay. How does this benefit me and my family? How 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 can I save more for my child's um, education fees? And I think a lot of our communication messages were often about like, um, what can you best get um, out of uh, you, you know yourself financially as an incentive? And that's how a lot of our rewards programs were actually positioned, right? So so that's one. I think the second part about um, the social aspect is um, women do a lot of social due diligence and uh, also think about our our they join social groups to talk about money um, a lot of times. So there's a concept in um, India called a chit fund, but basically it's uh it's like a group saving. What's it called? A chit fund. So on uh, it chit fund. Um, and and funny enough, uh, in Indonesia as well as other emerging markets, there are similar concepts but different names, which shows how much of a social phenomenon this actually is across markets. But uh, women in uh, the same neighborhood or village or town uh, will actually like pull together like um, like a group savings scheme, and then every month or time period, like somebody can tap into this fund. To let's say like buy a new pan or something else, right? So there's a there's almost like like this group behavior around it, and um, it's also social accountability because you don't want to be the person who like doesn't deposit in or um you know takes the money and he does it for something that um is 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 deemed not as acceptable like buying cigarettes or something like that. So um yeah, so so those are insights that we got from like speaking um to women and doing this research. I think there are, you know, a few other ones that I, you know, I can talk about for. Yeah, please but... give us uh, another one, another example, another finding that you. Yeah. Had. It was surprising for you. You know, I wouldn't say that this one was like overly surprising or shocking, but um, there is a big confidence gap. Um, so there's this feeling of, um, like if if you look at um digital payments and look at like the advertising that's related to which has a lot of men in it um it makes it feel like a very techie product and you don't really belong right it's a sense of belonging and um if you feel alienated then you don't really connect with the brand and then you don't really feel like confident to you know try it out because you don't want to like mess up and then you know feel 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 bad about it right so um there's this distance that people would feel. And, um, you know, when 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 the ads are all portraying a specific type of user, then, you know, you create that sense of like us, them and like I'm not, you know, able to be part of this. So. Um, so, yeah, that's a, um, you know, another insight that we found. And uh, 
you know, I think that gave a lot more thinking around the examples that we were using for payments as well. Um, so instead of it being like uh, always a friend to friend type of thing, we, we try to like think about what women would pay for. Right. And making the brand a, a lot more relatable. Um, so, yeah, those are just, you know, really high level findings. But, um, you know, the overall space, I think, is getting better. Um, we're not perfect yet, but I think when it comes to solving for financial inclusion for women specifically, you need to come at it with a very, very different lens um, than, than just the way men think about money. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. That's really fascinating. And then after these findings, you were, were, you were able to tweak your messages uh, to reach more women. And then I didn't know. I see you learn a new thing today about this uh, group uh, savings. Um, yeah, would you call it group savings, like a collective saving fund? Yeah. We have something like that in Brazil as well, but it's not as organized. We call it vaquinha. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's very fascinating. And then after you implemented these little changes, did you guys see any increase in adoption? So, um, look, everything that, you know, you do on gender inclusion within fintech is going to take time, right? It's not not overnight. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I left the team actually like just a few months after that. But, you know, I'm really glad that I was a part. Like I, I led that initiative and, you know, there it, it's actually still um, there's still a group of women and uh, other builders right at Google working on it. Um, but overall, like the adoption has improved. I think the number, um, if I recall correctly, across the board for digital payments is now closer to 20% um, than the, you know, 10 to 15% that you saw, you know, back in the day. So um, it's a, it's really a game of inches, right? Um, you have to really be committed to building for this audience and, you know, over time, see how, how those impacts, uh, how that impact kind of comes together. You mentioned you left Google after a few years there to found Blue Jay Finance. So how did the idea of Blue Jay Finance come about? And what, can you just talk us through what you guys offer? Because I said in the beginning, financial services, but it's very broad. So, you know, we been through a few iterations of our business as to like many startups, right? Um, but ultimately, um, we landed on um, a specific problem that we wanted to solve within the credit space. Now, I have some exposure to it back when I was at Google Pay because one of the initiatives that we were working on was actually um, merchant credit. So how can we, I'll, I'll, how, do, how can we take uh, transaction data that's um, uh, on the app and allow for uh, merchants to be able to um, get credit underwritten to them, right? Now that there's actual data that you can use. Um, and so the idea is to bridge that credit gap, right? So people and businesses that couldn't get funding before now can. Um, now, that has led to what we want to solve with Blue Jay um, because this problem of credit actually uh, is more overarching than just India and more than just like the street vendors, right? It's actually a lot of small to mid cap companies. Anybody who wants to borrow debt that is under $50 million in size is going to have 
some challenges because the banks are not really well designed to lend to these smaller players, right? They're incentivized to cut large check sizes to established players because that's how they make their money, right? And it's and also regulations, to be fair, right? There's like um, there's certain uh, requirements, compliance requirements, um, metrics that they really have to uphold, and so they're much more conservative, but. That's actually what leads to like a multi-trillion dollar credit gap, right? That's opportunities that are not getting funded um, because of this, right? And so um, what we want to do um, with our platform is make it easier for um, both sides of the market, people who are seeking credit and people who want to get yield from credit, be able to meet in a much... Uh, I guess, much more, um, you know, scalable and transparent way than before in the past, right? Uh, so uh, on the <clears throat> on the investor side of things, um, just to talk about the problem space here, um, you have a you have a growing number of people that are looking to start investing in alternative investments. And by alternative investments, it basically means anything that is non-standard like stocks or bonds or your bank savings but like ones that um can produce a higher yield sometimes a little bit higher risk but give you like let's say 10 percent per annum right you're not going to get that from your bank yeah just to clarify when you say investors you're talking about vcs or you're talking more about angel investors i'm talking about um individual investors so so um, I mean, I'm an investor, like I put money into uh, ETF, right? So more more like uh, personal wealth, I would say, ver versus institutional wealth. Aha, uh -huh. so you're targeting these, more, these individuals that want to invest in, let's say, not your usual business, uh, etc. And how do you, you know, make the bridge between the companies and, and the investors? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a challenge that anybody who runs a two sided market will face, right? You you have to listen to both sides, um, and uh, you you uh, get to a point where you have enough insight to engage the other and grow. So maybe, let me actually just give you an example because I think it might be easier to understand. Um, so uh, we start out with um, a hypothesis, right? Um, uh, Private credit providers to these SMEs um, are seeking additional channels for liquidity, um, and so we 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 work with these credit funds. Um, we solve a problem for them, and then we basically hypothesize that okay, like there's going to be a market for this, right? We we take their deal and then we go out and essentially um, open up a opportunity up to a hundred uh about a hundred k is actually what we launched with we're looking for a hundred k of investments and it's a bit of a bet on our side right we're like okay we we think we could unlock this capital and we actually did i mean we raised our first opportunity of a hundred k in eight hours so it filled up right away good people texting me thank you texting me saying hey i i just got off of work and the opportunity is gone um i didn't i i wish i was able to get in it but then that actually helped us demand test a bit more. And we're like, okay, well, we think that there's 100K of capital left that didn't get to invest. So we actually went back to the fund and said, could you give us 100 more K to fill? 
And then we fill that over the next, um, uh, over a course of three days. So Def yeah, definitely there is a demand for it. And talk, and we talk about investors, but on the other side, on the small and medium businesses, what kind of business do you guys focus on? Do you have a, a profile for certain kind of businesses? Yeah. So, so we, um, so we're not doing the underwriting for the business directly. We, the way that we, um, impact them as we partner with the underwriters that work with these businesses. So um, there's not really like a niche focus at the moment, but I can describe some of the kind of companies that have benefited. Um, so one type would be a more, I would say, um, traditional SME. So uh, one of the fintechs that we work with that have this credit fund um, actually partner with, uh, they partner with large conglomerates that have vendors seeking financing. Their vendors are small to medium businesses. So they could be like, um, so one of them is a, a cement production group in Thailand. And so they actually have a few vendors that um, provide raw materials, et cetera. So it's a traditional business, right? So it's actually um, much more about working capital um, or man, uh, filling in gaps in working capital. Um, so, so they need financing. Um, if the banks don't help with them because they're two million bucks or too small, that's where these guys step in. So, so they're these profile of businesses. We also work with companies that work with startups, right? So there will be, um, for example, um, you know, one thing that uh, is uh, quite interesting in Southeast Asia is the growth of um, e-commerce because um, again, it's a this is a market where you're experiencing um, high GDP growth as well as like a, a growing middle class among consumers. So e-commerce companies um, are also growing um, and they need credit, right, to be able to, um, you know, be able to grow their businesses. And so these tend to be a bit more startup because uh, they are higher growth and a little bit riskier, right? But they still um, go through a similar underwriting process. So I'm just giving some examples of the companies that ultimately benefit. Um, what we do is we look for really solid underwriters that have these companies within their portfolio. Yeah, yeah. I'm always fascinated with companies, especially companies in emerging markets, that uh, don't get the big headlines. For instance, a cement company. <laughs> yeah, a very glamorous sector. You see more, you know, fintechs and tech companies getting these big rounds of funding. And so why do you see the future of fintech growing yeah. in the emerging markets? The million dollar question. Well, um, you know, honestly, I, I'm I'm looking for I'm looking forward to seeing a world where there's um going to be a disintermediation of the entire space, right? Um what I would love to see is um what happened to e commerce with the internet happened to finance. Internet um, allowed for more people to be like producers of goods and services. Um, and because of that, you don't have to go through like a big box retailer that commands uh, that um, owns distribution. You can own your own distribution. Right. So um, an example I like to always give is like, um, you know, there's a very popular um, undergarment subscription company that's direct to consumer in the States. And that kind of company has like cool, very cute designs. Like, I, I don't think they would have done well in the 90s era of like, you know, big box, uh, you know, the Sears, the Macy's, right? But they can actually, 
have a direct relationship with their end customers and build a product they like. And, um, you know, maybe it's not the entire market, but it's a niche, but it can survive. I, I think something like this will happen even faster. So in financial services, I think it will happen even faster in emerging markets because the uh, level of access to financing is even more constrained here than, um, uh, you know, maybe more developed markets. And um, it's like there's a rapid pace of uh, GDP growth and, um, you know, business growth. But the traditional finance sector is, is still like it's not going to move, move to keep up with it. No, definitely not. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. So I want to see the future be more democratized, right? People who want to invest in what they want to invest in can invest. And then people can more and more businesses can get access to capital. And so you move from like a very exclusive market where um, small number of players with capital with small number of players that get capital to more people that can participate. So I look forward to the day where, um, you know, you can have like a a 20 person uh, company uh, doing a billion dollars in AUM targeting like you know, uh, it, I'm just giving an example, but maybe like overseas uh, expats that want to invest in like multiple countries um, because it's including ones that they're from. So like you can create these niche products because now there's a way for the market to connect. You don't have to go through traditional distribution channels like wealth advisors or from the investor relations department at funds. That's what's exciting about merger markets. That's why I started the website and the podcast is where all the innovation is. You always were very resourceful. There are exciting times ahead for fintech in emerging markets. And do you have any plugs, uh, Sherry? Do you want to say anything if you want to? If anyone wants to get in, in contact with you to know more about Blue Jay Finance become an investor or maybe a company, I don't know, anything. Yeah, well, we're always interested in, um, you know, building our own community. Um, so uh, if anyone wants to reach out, um, they can do so through LinkedIn. I'm just uh, Sherry Jang. Uh, if you see someone that's uh, ex-Googler, Blue Jay, that's me. Um, or <laughs> well, I'll put the links in the show notes so people can go and check yeah. out your LinkedIn profile, also the Blue Jay Finance website. And yeah, so thank you, Sherry. I think it was a very insightful conversation. And yeah, emerging markets is the future. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. Andy.